Last week, we began our deep dive into this chapter in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 13. It's often referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it was a lengthy speech or discourse of Jesus that was given on the Mount of Olives, across from the temple in Jerusalem. I reminded everyone that verse 3 of chapter 13, if you found it in your Bible, should always be in our mind's eye when we're thinking about Mark 13, because the scene would have been a breathtaking panoramic view of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, for those of you who missed last week's message, we don't have time to visit every detail of what was said, but let me at least give you some high-level takeaways, and perhaps you can go listen online to the whole thing later. First of all, we looked at the occasion of this discourse. It was given on the heels of Jesus' departure from the temple. It came as a response to the admiration of the temple and the design of it and the massive stones of it, and then the subsequent prophecy that Jesus gave of the destruction of the temple. Again, there's no way to overemphasize how incredible a statement that would have been that no stone would have been left on another when some of them were a million pounds. Just incredible, massive stones. It would have been difficult to imagine that not one stone would be left upon another. But it was on the heels of those words that the disciples then asked Jesus privately, when will this happen? And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? We noted that it is important to understand the mindset that the disciples had in that question You see, they would have thought of the destruction of the temple as concurrent with the end of the age, the ushering in of the messianic kingdom at basically the same time. And so Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3 became a helpful interpretive guide to the question in Mark. In Matthew 24 verse 3 we read, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? That's the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know about two great historic events, the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Messiah into his kingdom and the end of the age. And we said the key to understanding and interpreting Mark 13 would be to grasp when Jesus is speaking about one or the other or both at the same time. After considering what brought about this lengthy discourse, the occasion We then looked at the objective of the Olivet Discourse, and we said that it is evident that this discourse hangs on imperatives, commands. The imperative blepite in Greek, or watch out in English, it frames verses 5 through 23, and it actually occurs four times in this text. Jesus wants his disciples to be watchful, in particular, that no one deceives them. So his concern, we said, was pastoral. And in summarizing the objective, we said that by his pastoral commands, Christ intends to make his disciples unswerving in spite of the proliferation of false teaching, unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters, unflinching in the face of persecution of those who profess the name of Christ, unrelenting in spite of the prevalence of apostasy, unharmed in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, unshakable in their confidence in God's word, and unwearying in their preparedness for Christ's second coming, even if the exact timing of that event is unknown. And then finally, we gave an overview or an outline 
five parts at a high level of an introduction to verses 5 through 37. Today, we will be looking at parts 1 and 2 in greater detail. And next Sunday, Lord willing, part 3. And two Sundays from now, Lord willing, parts 4 and 5. I trust that you can go to the sermon recording and get that whole outline. But since we're focusing on parts 1 and 2 today, and we said that those sections of this discourse covered verses 5 through 23, that is what I would like us to stand and read today. And in fact, for context's sake, we'll begin at verse 1. So let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, beginning in Mark chapter 13. And we'll read verses 1 through 23. This is the Word of the Lord. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary, first, that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. But Say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray, it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect, whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see, there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch I've told you everything in advance. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. 
how are we to interpret the Russian invasion of Ukraine? What could the persecution of believers in China and India possibly mean? Why is there a seemingly endless string of natural disasters? Does it all mean that the end is near? To the contrary, Jesus is telling his disciples what the characteristics of the period between his two advents will be like. In other words, he's addressing characteristics of the time that will lead up to the destruction of the temple. And then as history has made plain, he is also describing characteristics of the time leading up to his second coming. And so we consider this first point of the outline, the characteristics of the period between Christ's advents, his two comings. Invariably, it seems there is always something on the world stage that would make a person wonder, is Jesus about to return? But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells us all these things must take place, but, he says, it is not yet the end. They are just the beginning of birth pains. Some of you have been parents before, and if you've ever had a first child, you know that when birth pains come, they can be a little unsettling. We don't really know what's going to happen here. Uh, They can happen very early. You can end up going to the hospital, being sent home. You can go get a doctor, an ultrasound, and this and that. The birth pains, they become, like, really super concerning. But if some of you have had, like, multiple children, you're on, like, your fourth or your fifth, some of you seven, whatever, you know, you get to the fourth or fifth child— And you know how those parents become, right? They're like, no, no, we'll just kind of saunter in at the last minute, lay down, woman has the child straight away. And, you know, it's like, if we even bother to get to the hospital at all, it'll be fine. You know, like they've come to understand the food and the sleep is better at home. And, you know, these things happen kind of naturally, right? You know, so they develop this mindset that sets aside premature expectations. Commentator R.T. France says the Olivet Discourse begins on a note which is one of its most persistent characteristics. That is the warning against premature expectation. It's almost as though Jesus is giving the disciples a list of non-signs. They're like the Braxton Hicks contractions, right? Yet somehow, the very thing that Jesus told his disciples would not be harbingers of the end have become the fascination of well-meaning and distracted Christians. There's an entire industry of books, magazines, videos that speculate about how every new earthquake or disaster or solar eclipse or war is a sign of the end of the times. And sadly, their prognostications prove wrong over and over and over again. Christ knows that it is contrary to our natural inclinations to process earth-rattling disruptions without being led into speculation. So he warns his followers to watch out that no one deceives you. In other words, deception will be one of the characteristics of the period between Christ's advents. There will be a proliferation of false teachers. We see this in verses 5 and 6. In the ESV, the scripture says, see that no one leads you astray. False teachers come, and they, their endeavor will be to get you to swerve, 
from the true Messiah. Some of them are really slippery, and they're really slick, too. The main question you should ask any teacher or teaching is, what do you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Incidentally, this is why having a doctrinally sound understanding of who Jesus is is critical. Because if you're fast and loose on your understanding of Jesus, you're a sitting duck for false teachers. They will come, Jesus says. Many will come. There will be a proliferation of them. And there was a proliferation of these kinds of false messiahs in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Secular historian Josephus records that there were many other self-proclaimed messiahs during the 40 years that would eventually lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. You may also recall how after the arrest of, uh, of Peter and John and the, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, Gamaliel, you remember this? He stands up in the council and he spoke about that guy Thutis, and he says there's that Judas, the Galilean, they're leading these kind of Messiah-like uprisings because the political environment for false messiahs was ripe in that time. But you see, false messiahs continue to persist to this day. They will persist until Jesus comes back. So we too must watch out. Hear me clearly. Just because a so-called church has the name Jesus Christ in it, or just because a so-called church teaches about Jesus Christ or feigns homage to him does not mean they are a true church. That's very important to understand. Jesus says, many will come in my name. They will use the name of Jesus to mislead and deceive you. And this is a particular danger for those who love the name of Jesus, which I would believe all of us here today would profess we do. So watch out for Charles Taze Russell, and watch out for Joseph Smith, and watch out for so many others like them. They will come in Jesus' name and lead you astray. They may seem to have an appearance of the truth, but they will deceive you. I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, Nowhere does the devil come to us with a great big hunk of heresy and say, go ahead, damn your soul. That's not how the devil works. It's much more subtle, a twisting of the truth. Christians must see to it that they are unswerving from their total devotion to Jesus of Nazareth as the only Messiah and as the definitive and final revelation of the one and only true and living God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. Listen, if anyone comes and suggests they have some further revelation, you must be unswerving from your commitment to the finality of the revelation of God that he has given us. God has spoken. Like the hymn says, what more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. So stick to Jesus. Stick to his word. Be unswerving in spite of the proliferation of false teaching. But the proliferation of false teaching is not the only characteristic of the time between Christ's comings. There will be, Jesus says, the presence of wars and natural disasters. Now, verses 7 and 8 are just so plain. 
they're worth looking at again. Because some of you got a little quizzical look on your face when I started the message. So I just want to read verses 7 and 8 one more time. Jesus says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. Period. Full stop. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines and some manuscripts add disturbances. These are the beginning of birth pains. We talked about second person plural imperatives last week. Some of you got a good grammar lesson, I hope. In other words, a command for y'all. A second person plural command. And what does Jesus command his disciples here? The imperative, you could underline it. It says, do not be alarmed. That's the command. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed when wars, international rivalries, disasters of the natural kind, because these things, you could underline it, must take place. The CSB Study Bible, I think, gives a great, succinct statement about these verses. It says, quote, wars and rumors of wars are not signs of the end, but characterize the entire age. Jesus said these things must take place, meaning they are a part of God's plan, end quote. Another author reflecting on the presence of war in the world, he wrote this. He says, war is one of the constants of history. It has not diminished with civilization or democracy in the last, as of the time of his writing, 3,421 years of history, only 268 of them had seen no war. Jesus says these things must be. It's a fixed and firm purpose of God, a divine must, if you will. Why? I would argue so that no one will ever mistake this age for the age to come. You can never be confused that we're living in the reign and rule of the Prince of Peace in the age to come. This is not a time of peace. It's a time of war. It's a sobering reality check. For those who think democracy or capitalism or Marxism or communism or socialism or any other ism or any political party or political agenda can ever usher in an age of governmental utopia, where people live in total peace in the absence of conflict. International rivalries, Jesus says, will happen. It's also a sobering reality check for those who think that renewable energy and green corporations and lower carbon emissions will usher in an age of natural utopia, where people will live in total peace in the absence of natural disasters. Earthquakes, famines, hurricanes, pandemics, tornadoes will happen. Pastor Jason, are you saying we shouldn't treat the planet well? Of course not. That's not what I'm saying. That would be like me saying we should also mistreat one another and strive for conflict between nations. That is not what I'm saying. Don't twist or misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm simply trying to alert us as believers that our Lord who predicted the destruction of the temple, an impossibility in the minds of the Jews. He also predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, the Lord of all creation and all history said, these things must take place. But 
The end is not yet. Get that firmly in our minds. Therefore, Christians should not be alarmed. We should be unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters. Hear me clearly. Not unfeeling. The traumas of war are gut-wrenching. The pictures from Ukraine, surely the tragedies of every war, all the heartbrokenness of the loss of life and property in the wake of tornadoes and volcanoes and fires, they are all too real. But while we grieve with those who grieve, we are not alarmed by the presence of these birth pains. We are unflappable. We don't go around in a tizzy because of them. We press right along and serve refugees, bind the wounds of those who are injured, bury the dead, rebuild the homes of those who lost them, and all the while continuing to proclaim the gospel and patiently expecting that one day these birth pains will result in a new heavens and a new earth and a consummated age of peace under the eternal rule and reign of the Prince of Peace. Now, we don't have time to read it right now. Trust me, I desperately wanted to. But for your homework, go look at Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 25 later today. And tell me if you don't think Paul had this teaching on his mind. He says God didn't give us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We are to be fearless. He says God subjected the creation to futility. In other words, it must happen. He says God did so in a hope that the creation itself will be set free from a bondage to corruption. In other words, there is a purpose, a telos, in the futility of wars. There is a purpose, a goal in the futility of natural disasters. The groaning and the child pains are bringing about something new and beautiful. So we wait with patience unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters. But then thirdly, let's look at another characteristic of the time between Christ's comings, and that is the persecution of those who profess the name of Christ. In verse 9, you need to be aware that the you is an emphatic you in the Greek. You yourselves. Remember what we said last week? The you in the pew is not necessarily the you in view. This is you disciples yourselves, you guys. Be on your guard. Another imperative to them. And then he proceeds to give what could be called a movie trailer for the book of Acts. Right? We can think of time after time in the second volume of Dr. Luke's writing to Theophilus when he records how the disciples would be taken before councils, synagogues, and governors, and kings. Think of Paul before Agrippa and Festus, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and so many other instances in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Too many to count. Jesus says there will be opportunities to proclaim the gospel even to those who are persecuting you. So again, he gives his disciples another command in verse 11. Just if you're underlining them, this, this command is don't worry beforehand. Don't be anxious beforehand. They're not to worry in advance about what will happen when they are handed over. Instead, they are to say, that's another imperative, or to speak what is given them by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what would happen to the disciples? It's predicted exactly what would happen. There are too many times, again, to go to the book of Acts to see. But just as one example, you could write down Acts 4, verses 5 through 12. It tells us Peter was standing before the council, predicted right here, 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see how that, that's part of the fulfillment of this prophecy of Jesus when he spoke to them. And that's when he proclaimed to them their salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. He got to proclaim to the ones calling him in and say, Jesus is the only way of salvation. So in advance of the persecution that will come from both religious and political authorities, Jesus told his disciples, be on your guard. Expect it so that they could be unflinching when it happened. But before we leave these verses of persecution, I want you to note what is right smack dab in the middle of that predicted persecution of the disciples. Verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. I put the ESV on the screen because CSB is missing the word first. It is undoubtedly in the English language, or excuse me, in the Greek, uh, the, the original language. Jesus says the gospel must be proclaimed first, and then Matthew's gospel adds, and then the end will come, which to me is a huge hint that this is not only a precursor or a movie trailer to the book of Acts and a precursor to the destruction of the temple, but that gospel proclamation, in spite of persecution, will be a characteristic of the time up until Christ comes. Then the end will come, when the gospel is proclaimed first to all the nations. That's why today I think we can apply this principle to our own lives. So that you and the pew are going to get a command, right? And be unflinching. You, be unflinching in the face of persecution for his name's sake. Take note of verse 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And is that not true even of our age? Be on your guard, LBC. Family members will dismiss you. And in some cases around the world, they will disown you when you start proclaiming the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. Your job, your boss may fire you. Be on your guard. Civic authorities may arrest you in some places for preaching the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. I would argue that last word is what's going to get you in jail these days. Where will you turn for comfort when that persecution comes? Oh, friends, if you and I were afraid of the Olivet Discourse because of its supposed interpretive difficulties, we might have missed out on the amazing comfort found in the commands like this one. Jesus says, don't worry beforehand. Don't be anxious beforehand what you'll do when it happens. You say, but I'm not sure if I could claim my faith if my job was on the line. I'm not sure if I could proclaim my faith in Jesus if I was being held at gunpoint and asked, listen, you don't have to be sure right now. That's what Jesus says. Don't worry beforehand about that. In the providence of God, if you are ever in that situation, he will strengthen you by his Holy Spirit to speak the words that he gives you. Christians will be unflinching when they are persecuted because of what is given to them, not because they have some superhuman intrinsic natural fortitude. What, like Peter had? When he was so very brave as he stood around the fire and the little girl <laughs> recognized him as a Jesus follower? As he watched his Lord be handed over, that kind of intrinsic fortitude? He denied him. He was afraid. He was a coward. But he was the same dude that was filled with the Holy Spirit 
and proclaimed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and bravely at Pentecost told the Jews, you crucified our Messiah. What changed? It was the gift of God's spirit to empower him to be an unflinching witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same thing will be true in you if God ever sees fit to use you in that way for his glory and for the advance of the gospel. So we're not to be deceived. We're not to be alarmed. We're not to be worried in advance. And as we move on in our outline, we're not to give up in spite of the prevalence of apostasy. Look at verse 13. The prevalence of apostasy, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures the end will be saved. And to draw in the parallel from Matthew's account in verses 11 through 13 of Matthew 24, false prophets will arise, lead many astray, verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus tells the disciples, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures will be saved. There will be some who now currently profess a love of Jesus that will grow cold and fall away. Now, I want to be very clear. True believers will keep going through thick and thin. How can you know that, Pastor Jason? I want to give you one example from Mark 13 and one from 1 John. In this context, in verse 22, if you just have Mark 13 open in your lap, look at verse 22. Jesus says, false prophets will come. They'll do signs and wonders to lead astray. He says, if possible, the elect. Implication, it's not possible. (laughs) That's one way you can know that true believers will persevere. Jesus says in John that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand or out of the Father's hand. And we read in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 that those who had once professed the love of Jesus went out from us But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. D.A. Carson says that properly understanding apostasy means we need to properly understand the true nature of conversion. And so if we have as our definition of conversion that it is the change of life brought about by repentance and faith that perseveres to the end, like get that in your definition of conversion, then it's understandable that there will be some seeming conversions that have some tasting of spiritual things, to quote from Hebrews, some change for a season, if we want to think of like the parable of the soils, but that does not persevere. In other words, those who are truly converted do not go out. They do endure to the end. But some who profess Christ's name now will renounce that profession, proving to have never been a genuine convert. And of course, the pastoral application for all of this is simply this. Jesus warned us that the love of many will grow cold. And so he exhorts us to endure to the end. We are to be unrelenting, as it were, in spite of the prevalence of apostasy. So now I hope that you could look back at either last week's objective or look at the application from part one of the Olivet Discourse in today's outline and be able to point in your Bible to how we arrived at this 
application points, okay? So by way of application, from this section, we've learned Christ's followers in every age are to be unswerving, unflappable, unflinching, and unrelenting. Okay, Jesus says, with regard to unswerving, watch out that no one deceives you, that you're not led astray. So we surmise that we must not swerve or be led astray from Christ alone and a doctrinally rich understanding of his person, nature, and work. That's verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, secondly, don't be alarmed at wars and natural disasters. So we must be unflappable when it would seem we have every reason, as it were, to flap. (laughs) Okay, verses 7 and 8. Jesus says, be on your guard. Don't be anxious beforehand and speak what the Spirit gives you. He further guarantees that the gospel will be proclaimed and then the end will come in spite of the fact civil authorities, religious authorities, and even family members will persecute us. And so we in turn must be unflinching in the face of that persecution. And then Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew's gospel adds to it, the love of many will grow cold. So we are not surprised by apostasy, but we ourselves are encouraged to be unrelenting and enduring, never giving up on our love for and commitment to Jesus Christ until he comes or we go. Now, I know that this is a longer message than usual. Uh, But I don't intend to spend quite as long on part two as I did on part one. But it is important. And I believe it will be of great encouragement. So as Jesus says often in this discourse, stay awake. Okay. (laughs) Look secondly now at the command to flee to the mountains. The command to flee to the mountains. It's evident that verses 14 through 23 hang upon this command, this imperative. It is the primary command that Jesus gave to his disciples, and it's obvious that Jesus intended them to understand this portion of the discourse as the answer to their question about the sign of when the destruction of the temple would be imminent. He has already said, when you see all these things, okay, put them in this bucket, false messiahs, false teaching, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, persecution, the end is not yet. But when you see, okay, the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. It's a particularly sharp birth pain. In other words, the occasion for this command was something that could be observed. It could be seen. Jesus says in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, you'll be able to observe it. You'll be able to recognize something. Well, what was that thing? I've said it a couple times. The cryptic, ambiguous, and difficult abomination of desolation. But it was the clear answer to their sign. Now, for the kids in the room, an abomination is just simply something detestable to God. An appalling sacrilege. Whatever it was, it was going to leave its path desolate. This language is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. And it's at this point that I'd just like to quote one commentary at length because I think he sums up this mysterious statement of Jesus very nicely. He says, The abomination that causes desolation must be in some way recognizable, observable, in terms of its meaning in Daniel which was a profanation or a profaning of the temple involving the setting up of an abomination of desolation and the cessation, the stopping, the ceasing of regular sacrifices. The setting in Daniel makes it clear that this refers to the abolition of temple worship 
that was ordered by Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. Other intertestamental writings confirm that the abomination of desolation itself represents the altar of Zeus that was set up. He sacrificed pigs in the temple. It was just a complete sacrilege that took place. And the timing of it is a fulfillment exactly of what Daniel predicted by Antiochus Epiphanes. So there's no evidence that the phrase was used in any other connection so that those who heard must have understood if they understood anything at all about that phrase, they had to understand it in terms of what Daniel prophesied. And since the specific events of that time were now in the past, okay, this is AD, this is not 167 BC, those in the first century would have only understood it as an event or object which was in some way recognizable as a correspondence. It had to some way correspond to what Antiochus had done. Now, how close that correspondent needs to be is a matter of judgment. Perhaps why, let the reader understand, is inserted. In other words, it might suggest that it requires a subtlety of interpretation into how this corresponds. The second event, the second, sorry, the second evident thing is that this event is sufficiently recognizable. It's going to be sufficiently observable by the disciples to provide a clear prompt to those who are living in Judea that it's time to urgently flee. And then thirdly, it must have been at a time shortly before the Roman advance and siege while escape was still possible. That's just kind of logically built into this. You had to be able to get out in time, but it had to be close enough to make urgent flight necessary. Okay, immediate departure. So what the disciples should be on the lookout for then seems to be a repetition in some way of the events of 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. That's what they're supposed to look for. Now, here is where reading that one quote from a commentary helps me establish the main thing, the main point for us today. Listen, you can spend hours of your life trying to figure out what specifically served as the sign to the disciples. Trust me, I did. <laughs> there are no less than eight suggestions as to what that sign was, but it's beside the point. The important thing is it would be observable by the disciples. And then once it was observed, its urgency, the command's urgency was to be obeyed verses 15 and 16. And we know from history that it, in fact, was obeyed. R.C. Sproul writes that in times of invasion, people, people typically fled not to the mountains, didn't flee to the mountains, they fled into the walled cities, which were regarded as a safer place to be. And that's exactly what happened when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and placed Jerusalem under siege. Jerusalem was packed with people coming in from the countryside, coming in from the villages to the safety of the walled city. And when Jerusalem fell to the Romans, 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered. But the Christians were not there. They weren't there. They had taken note of the sign, whatever it was, observable as it were, and gotten out of Dodge. Jesus had impressed upon them urgency. Don't go down from your rooftop where you might be chillaxing one summer night. They had those flat roofs, you know. 
And they would just kind of chill out there, get a little cool breeze going. He says, don't go into your house. It's like a Jason Bourne thriller, man, just running from rooftop to rooftop, just getting out of Dodge. When you hear this report of an observable abomination, you flee. If you're in the field and someone comes and says, listen, you won't believe it. The thing Jesus predicted is happening. It's near near the temple. You don't go back and you don't go get your coat that you would have stripped off for working in the field. You go get out of there because you can get a new coat. You can't replace your life. So they fled urgently. But then note that the difficulties in giving this command of that flight were to be lamented. The difficulties of that flight are to be lamented. With all love to pregnant women, I'm looking at some out here today, I've never met one who runs very quickly. (laughs) Uh, The more pregnant you are, the more you start to do that kind of counterbalance thing, you know? kind of shuffle a little bit, right? You, You know, again, lovingly, you don't see pregnant women run. The destruction of Jerusalem is going to come, Jesus says. And the urgent nature of that escape led our Lord to empathize with women who would have been nursing or carrying children in their wombs at that time. Then notice in verse 18, this is critical for our application, so just pay attention here. When the command to flee was given, Jesus says that its season was to be prayed for. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. He says, and this is one of the imperatives, pray it won't happen in winter. Not only would there be physical hindrances, but the season, the timing of the year, could become a hindrance to your flight as well. So Jesus enjoins the disciples to pray that it won't happen during the winter season. Now, one pastor has helpfully pointed out, the Lord was talking about an event fixed in the council of God. The destruction of the temple and in Jerusalem was going to happen. Yet he simultaneously says, commands the disciples, pray. You do something. Pray that it won't happen in the winter. In other words, as you feel your own weakness, your human frailty, like pregnancy or nursing an infant, when you see approaching armies surrounding Jerusalem, don't be withered into a spirit of defeatism. Don't throw your hands up and say, there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus says, pray. Pray. And the clear indication there is that the prayers of the people of God are woven into the texture of the decrees and sovereignty of God that determine the outcome of events like the actions of heathen armies that are invading Jerusalem. In other words, the decision of those armies with regard to the timing of their siege can be influenced by your prayer. There is no set of circumstances that Almighty God cannot alter in answer to prayer. Let's say that again. There is no set of circumstances that Almighty God cannot alter in answer to prayer. Prayer is one of the means that God has ordained to bring about his sovereign purposes. Prayer is the means that God has ordained. As Barney Fife says, put that in your smipe and poke it. When you pray, Jesus says, pray like this. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So the command to flee comes with the command to pray for the timing. But we also note that the goal of the command to flee was that the elect would be unharmed in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. The goal of this command to flee to the mountains was that the elect be unharmed in the total aftermath, total devastation of Jerusalem. Verses 19 through 20 say the tribulation will be unprecedented. 
The language in the Greek says that if the days had not been cut short, and that's like the violent cutting short of an amputation, if they had not been radically shortened, no flesh, no human being would have survived. Outside the city of Jerusalem, history records that the Romans crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood for crosses. Inside, there was extreme infighting, murder, famine, disease, and even cannibalism. Thousands were slaughtered when the Romans breached the walls, and in all, Josephus records that 1.1 million died and 97,000 were taken captive. But Jesus says, for the sake of the elect, whom God chose, God shortened those days so that they would remain unharmed. And then finally, as regarding the command to flee, any naysayers are to be ignored. The naysayers on this command, you just don't believe them. You cannot believe them. Verse 21 through 22, Jesus warns them, if anyone at that time tries to tell you not to run, but to come join the fight, like some newfound Messiah figure says, no, come join my team. We've got this. We can take them on. Get away from them. Or even if false prophets arise and perform signs or wonders to make you think they are genuine, you can be sure that they are wrong. Their appeal to stay in Jerusalem is to be totally ignored and disbelieved. And then Jesus concludes this thought on the sign of the impending devastation of Jerusalem with the same exact command that he gave at the beginning of verse 5. The CSB uses the same exact word, watch. You must watch provides a neat wrapper, a frame around all these verses and should not be forgotten when we consider why we're stopping here and picking up where we will be next Sunday. So we are now left with the task of asking the Holy Spirit to help us determine what, if anything, we can learn from these verses, verses 14 through 23, because we, after all, are not Peter, James, Andrew, John, or any of the 12, or any of those in Judea, so what can we learn from this section that seems specific to the Jews who would have been in Judea at that time? Briefly, I want to give two application points. First of all, we have seen already how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is a beautifully woven tapestry. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is a beautifully woven tapestry. We believe God is sovereign. He is in control of the course of human history. That's why Jesus could predict with 100% accuracy the total devastation of the temple in Jerusalem. There is no way it would not happen. He later says, heaven and earth will pass away, which indeed they actually will, but my words will never pass away. It's a guarantee it. It's gonna happen. And yet he commanded his disciples to pray and to pray that it wouldn't happen in winter. In God's wisdom, he has ordained the means of prayer as a part of the tapestry of his sovereign actions, which has all kinds of implications. This means that the decisions of the Romans, the generals deciding what season of the year to lay siege, could be altered by God in accord with the prayer of the saints. Is that not the kind of sovereignty of God that Proverbs tells us he has? Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Brothers and sisters, 
we have the great privilege of praying to the God who can turn the hearts of kings and direct the actions of generals and armies. Pray and trust God's sovereign hand. But did you also notice the very human responsibility to flee? It's a very human thing to do. (laughs) Flee to the mountains. J.C. Ryle points out that in this passage of Scripture, we learn about what he calls the lawfulness, like it's okay to do this, of using means to provide for our own personal safety. What does he mean by that? Don't ever get the idea that because we serve a sovereign God, you never have to wear a seatbelt. Or to use a more extreme example that you could jump out of a plane without a parachute. In other words, God ordains the means and the ends. And the human means of fleeing under certain circumstances is recorded for us in the Bible as absolutely acceptable for Christians. In other words, there is no indication that God calls us to a brazen march to martyrdom. Ryle says the lesson is one of wide application and of much usefulness. A believer is not to suppose that God will take care of him and provide for his wants if he doesn't make use of the means and the common sense. You hear me, students? You hear me, older kids? The means and the common sense which God has given him, as well as he's given to other people. Beyond a doubt, we can expect a special help from our Father in heaven in every time of need as believers. But a believer must expect that help in the use, in the diligent use of lawful means. To profess to trust God while we idly sit and do nothing is nothing better than enthusiasm and fanaticism, and it brings our religion into contempt. He goes on to cite examples. Jacob, you remember this? He prayed, and then he sent gifts ahead of him to Esau. (laughs) Okay, like practical, right? Hezekiah told the people, God was with them to fight our battles. We love to sing that song. And then he says, go make some darts and shields and build up the walls. Paul trusted God with great faith and great confidence, and he was lowered down over a wall in a basket. Now, the only caution that he gives here is that we are never to only rely on human means. And an example would be, to only rely on physicians and never pray. The Bible condemns Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 16. It says in the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Yet even his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought the help from physicians. That's okay, lawful to use means, but he didn't pray. So that's the, it's a both and. God is sovereign and we are responsible to pray. So we use all the means and all the common sense that God gives us at the same time, leaving the entire event in the hands of a sovereign God through prayer. That is what we mean by the beautiful tapestry of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans. And if I might add just a a good personal example, think of what the Kokolioses are doing right now. I think that's a good example. Use everything they can, humanly possible, and then pray and trust God. But then lastly, by way of application, we learn that the doctrine of election helps us understand prophecy and history. We come to understand in this passage that the reason, the reason, the four, he says four, 
the reason that the days were cut short on the siege of Jerusalem was for the sake of the elect. Look at it in verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved, but he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. When the armies of Rome finally stopped their siege, I am sure that the generals had their own human explanations of why they were stopping. But Jesus tells us that his reason for the cutting short of the days was for the sake of the elect. Christ will have his bride. There were people God chose to save who were in Jerusalem. And if they had died, they would have never heard the gospel and would never have believed the gospel. But their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. One of, if not the greatest governing concern of all prophecy in all history is the salvation of God's elect. This passage is one demonstration of it. The prophecy at Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel proves it also. The angel says, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Not he hopes to save, not he wants to save. He will save his people. Pharaohs and kings, hailstorms and floods, invasions and peacetimes, donkeys and giant fish have all served God's sovereign purposes of salvation. And while the doctrine of election is deep and mysterious, it's totally plain in this passage. Four times it is referred to J.C. Ryle says, there is no question the doctrine of election has been sadly perverted and abused. But I want you to hear me clearly. The misuse of truths must not prevent us from using them altogether. Just like the potential that we warned against of twisting prophecy didn't warrant us flipping past Mark 13 in our study. The misuse of truth doesn't mean not to use it altogether. When it is rightly used and fenced, as he puts it, with proper cautions, election is a doctrine full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. So what are the cautions? What fence should we have, as it were? Ryle says we must never forget that God's election does not destroy man's responsibility. Did you hear that twice today? Or accountability for his own soul. The same Bible which speaks of election always addresses men as free agents and calls on them to repent, to believe, to seek, to pray, to strive, to labor. In other words, we cannot take any comfort from the election of God unless we have shown plain evidence in our own repentance and faith. We are not to stand still, troubling ourselves with anxious worry and speculation of, am I the elect or am I not the elect? When God commands us plainly, repent and believe. So as another pastor put it, election is not a dusty and musty doctrine. It's planted right here in the middle of the Olivet Discourse with wars and natural disasters and persecution and apostasy as a comfort to believers. Election served as the consolation of Christ as he faced Calvary, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? He will save his people from his sins. Election serves as a comfort to the followers of Christ. We will not be deceived. 
by false prophets and false Christs, even when they perform signs and wonders. If it were possible for us to be deceived, we would be, but it's not possible. He will save us to the uttermost. Election serves as the basis of my confidence every time I preach the name of Jesus. I have no confidence that one day I can wear you down into becoming a Christian. But I have every confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to give new life and to regenerate the lost and to call into existence that which does not exist, as Romans puts it. Election can serve as a ground of constraint to those of you who are not yet believers. Maybe you say, I just came here to kind of see what it's all about. How can you say this doctrine is constraining me? Well, let me just tell you that according to this passage, God preserves the lives of his elect so they'll be converted. Are you alive? <laughs> it's not by accident you're here. You're alive. There are many people your age, whatever age you are. I can tell you as a pastor, I've seen, I've been to their funeral, I've done some of them. Why are you here? And they're not. It could be a mark of your election. We also know from Scripture that election always happens by means. There are means that God uses to bring it about. And the means of election is the preaching of the gospel. Dear friends, you are here today in the sound of my voice, preaching the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, for sins that you've committed, and then he rose again to guarantee your eternal life with him. You didn't hear a pastor come and give you his latest political take. You can hear that on cable news. You didn't hear a pastor preaching his favorite hobby horse. You heard the gospel according to Mark. And while there's not a single word in the Bible that says anything about being non-elect, there are plenty of words in the Bible that says we are sinners and that we fall short of the glory of God. That we've sinned against the holy God. So don't ever let this doctrine be a barrier to your salvation. It is in fact the framework through which I can entreat you. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Go to Christ. He will receive you. He will by no means cast you out. That's what the Bible says in a verse worth closing with, with that clearly demonstrates the human responsibility to repent, believe, and receive the gospel, receive Christ, and the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit, in bringing it about. Let's look as we close at John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Pause. That is Mark eleven twelve 12, and 13, 14, 15, 16. Okay, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, that's an action. That's something you must do. You must receive him. Who believed in his name. That's another action that you are responsible to believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <laughs> As John 3 says, they were born from above, anothen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, have you seen the glory of the only Son of God today. His death, burial, and resurrection, who is from the Father, 
and full of grace and truth, come to him today. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to dig into your word. Lord, to see the commands that you gave your disciples and to apply them to our own hearts. Father, I pray that you are strengthening the faith of believers here today. And Lord, that you are calling to repentance those who have never placed their faith and trust in you. Father, I pray that anything that I've said that may have been a distraction from those two ends will just be sovereignly removed from the record, so to speak. And Lord, that your will, your word, your spirit would move in the hearts of people here today within the sound of my voice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.